0: Hello, everyone. Joshua Gilliland here, one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me is Steve Chu, who is a huge Transformers fan, and we're going to talk about Bumblebee the movie. Steve, how you doing?
1: Very good. Excited to talk about Transformers. Thank you. Always. How are you?
0: Uh, you know, you got the touch. You got the power. <laughs>
1: i'm gonna start playing that music josh be careful
0: yeah, It's so 80s cheesy and beautiful and and bumblebee is pure 80s cheesiness and even works in that song
1: that song and you know let me let me do the sound effect here really quick yeah there we go
0: now the fact leonard nimoy voiced Two different bad guys in two Transformers movies should not be forgotten by anyone.
1: Yes, true. <laughs> uh,
0: versatile Man. That, uh, that being said, let's get into some of the fun of Bubble What did, did you like about this movie as a, you know, yeah, you're a practicing lawyer now, but you grew up loving Transformers. What worked about this movie for you?
1: So I, I will say um, I enjoyed the movie very very much. Um, I grew up with the brand as well. Um, received my first Transformer Christmas '84 and was just, just hooked from then on out. Never really got away from the brand entirely. I've always you know followed Transformers. Collected a lot as a kid. Collected a lot um, when I got back into things uh, around college, law school. Um, I've been to three Botcons, you know the Transformers convention, and Hasbro always has a presence at San Diego Comic Con as well. So, uh, a lot of stories about trying to get stuff there um, over my fifteen years at you know going to Comic Con. Um, and I, I, I was not planning to see uh, any further Transformers live-action movies in the theater. I will say that I did enjoy the first Bay movie in 2007. I thought it was pretty impressive, uh, just to see you know some of our childhood heroes come to life. Especially the moment when you see the Autobots appear and Optimus transforms, and you hear the voice of Peter Cullen. Um, you know, I just got chills. Peter Cullen, the voice of um, you know G1 animated Optimus Prime as well, and a legend in the Transformers fan community. Uh, I will say though that you know the rest of the Michael Bay movies. Really, not to my taste. Um, uh, you know, I, I had some issues with them. I, I was happy to have them around because they were good for the brand and kept the awareness of the brand very high. Uh, however, I will say that in the Bumblebee movie, uh, I was really blown away by the first 10 minutes of the movie when they're on Cybertron and you see all these familiar characters and the, the designs, um, although they are updated. Uh, you can still recognize the characters very well, you know. Apart from Bumblebee, and you got Optimus, and then you see just a quick gl- glimpse of very familiar characters. I think you see Ratchet, Ironhide, Wheeljack, some of the classic Series One Autobot cars and Minibots. Um, and I mean, that was just you know pure joy for me. And I watched it with my two boys who. um uh, for better or for worse, are very familiar with uh, G1 Transformers just from hearing me drone on and on and show them all the toys. And all three of us were recognizing characters left and right. Um, so you know, the movie had me right away. And the what I liked overall, too, was that uh, I, I felt the movie dialed down the testosterone from the Michael Bay movies and focused more on character and plot development uh, and I, I like that. I thought that really uh, benefited uh, the story and the movie. Um, and you could tell that there was tremendous, uh, like you were just saying before we got on, Josh, tremendous respect for the source material. Uh, that was very evident that the people making the this movie really cared very much about the original incarnation of the Transformers, the G1 from the 80s. A um, lot of little touches that were just fantastic. You know, like you said, you played Stan Bush's the touch on the radio. I mean, I cheered long and loud when that happened um, in uh, the relatively small theater that I was in. Uh, and, you know, there were just so many great nods to both the 80s and the Transformers. So um, I I thought it was fantastic. So that, that was uh, my rather lengthy take. But what, what did you think?
0: Uh, I loved it because it was everything good and noble and fun about transformers as a genre seeing the fight on cybertron was awesome seeing the transformers look right that that they look like the proper vehicles that optimus yes. prime doesn't have flames on him for no reason <laughs> that they look the way they were supposed to And the fact that they don't have like 15 characters at once is also a positive. Being able to focus on one hero and then a couple other kind of extended cameos uh, with Optimus Prime being a recurring theme, whether it's by message or appearance, that worked well. I loved the Northern California tie-ins because growing up in the Bay Area... It's like, oh, that's Santa Cruz, or it looks like they're supposed to live in San Rafael, but it looks like the beach boardwalk. It's it's stuff like right. the magic right. of movie making of let's play on Highway One. It's like good, you should be on that highway. It's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah, PCH. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that and making it look warm and comfortable all the time is also movie magic. Of It's like, wow, well, you were able to do that not on foggy days. So good job.
1: Yes, talk. that's true. Yeah, for non-Bay non-Bay Area natives, they may not realize how much fog there typically is in the Bay Area. <laughs> yeah, if you only yeah. see the movies, you think every day is just bright sunshine and clear skies, so but not not always so.
0: Yeah, if you visit San Francisco, you most likely will not need shorts. Ever. Yeah,
1: right. Uh, there's a,
0: <laughs> a handful of days, it could be like 90, but that's it, and that's very, very yeah, rare. Right. So they they really captured the spirit of it. I really liked the characters, uh, You know, whether it was Charlie, or was it Memo or Mimo, I wasn't quite sure how his name was pronounced because it was so fast. I liked the fact that There wasn't the over-sexualization of women, nor treating them as objects. So that was a nice...
1: Yes, uh, no, right.
0: right. No random, like, butt shots. And it's like, wow, you were just, you know, like, who was the cameraman? Why did you think that was okay? And so, like, that was a nice development, uh, the way the the male and female lead interact uh, with, like, you know, it's like, nope, we're not there yet. It's like, okay, cool. It's like they're normal.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah, you didn't have just this you know, really quick, oh, get to know you, hook up, you know, all these predictable tropes that happen. It was a little more real, um, which I liked a lot. And there was a lot more focus. You know, the protagonist is female. Um, and I thought that was kind of see the world through her eyes. Right? You know, so in some ways, you could say this is sort of the first female Transformers protagonist we have um, in essence, RC in the 86 animated movie when you suddenly have a female character. I mean, if you go into delve a little deeper in into canon, you have, um, I think, what was uh, what the first appearance of Alpha Trion in season two of the cartoon uh, where you have the three female Autobots appear, Chromia and um, Alita-1 Moon Racer. Um, but there's not a lot of female characters in the Transformers canon. Um, the comic has introduced a few and you know th- there was the recent uh, introduction of the first female combiner as well in the idw comics which was pretty cool but um it was nice you know to see things from a female point of view rather than just kind of have you know woman be sort of um you know nice scenery or something um
0: objects <laughs> just yeah like, call it what it is and, and exactly a, yeah and that was it was just a nice break to treat human beings like human beings so right in a movie yeah movie, robots so it's it's quite <laughs> it, it's it's a fun movie <laughs> it's a fun good movie it movie.
1: is uh, it, that, it is and and i maybe one of the um one of the, one what to illustrate this, is too, is that I was receiving, in the days leading up to the movie's debut, I was receiving messages um, from a lot of my Transformers friends, uh, both here in the United States and abroad, you know, in Europe, who would all just say, Hey, Steve, you know, are you going to see Bumblebee? And I was, I was telling them, well, you know, maybe uh, I was going to say no. But then I, I went to, you know, I took my two boys to watch... Um, when the 1986 animated movie was played in theaters one night, uh, I took my boys and some friends and they had, of course, a preview uh, for the Bumblebee movie. And to that point I was saying, eh, you know, I'd heard from a few people, hey, you know, you got to check this out. Look at these designs. They actually look like G1 um, instead of the Bayverse, you know, kind of uh, mechanical designs. Uh, so when we saw the Bumblebee trailer, Upon watching the 86 movie um that night, which was I want to say it's October or November, uh, my boys looked at me and they said, Daddy, we might want to see this. And I thought, no, maybe. And then I started getting all these messages from people saying, Hey, you do need to see this, because it actually is very, very good and very true to the source material. Um, I think um uh, another way to, you know, one another way to drive this home is to say that there are several moments during the movie and they're sprinkled throughout, I think kind of well spaced out where any eighties fan of the G one transformers will just, um, you know, get a real thrill, you know, whether it be the playing of the touch, um, other eighties references, music, um, posters, music videos, um, you know, little inside jokes, uh, Yeah, there's there's just so much in there that um, you know, so much eye candy, so much um, nostalgia candy for for um, any child of the '80s. And then I, so I was getting chills, you know, just here and there throughout the movie. And then at the very end, that scene where you see Bumblebee driving by Optimus Prime, and not the Peterbilt, you know, truck Optimus. This is the G1 truck Optimus. Um, I mean, yeah, I. I got some chills there, you know, I, I just thought, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. We're seeing, you know, childhood heroes. There they are. Um, yeah, it was, it was a fun ride and I, I highly recommend it. it you know, it, imagine for a moment in an alternate universe if this had been the first live action movie. I wonder what that would have done. You know, I think it would have made a lot of money. Um, and who knows what it would have done with the direction of the franchise.
0: I would have been better written and, (laughs) you know, it's it's, the writers and the creative team clearly had a respect or love for the subject matter and it shows They, they went out of their way to make a fun movie that reflects what the toys were like that, you know, is welcoming for all fans. You know, they're, they're not trying to go like, oh, I want the seven-year-olds of today. It's I want everybody. And yeah. And like, you know, whether it's seeing TV dinners. Uh, yes. People watching uh, TV while eating dinner on you know, on TV dinner trays. It's like, yep,
1: yes. I remember
0: those days. Um, right. And, uh, but let, let's talk about some of the legal analysis. so Yes. Uh, I, I, you know, we, we've we both clearly like the movie. There are some legal things that jump out right away, and let's just start with the end. Bumblebee and Optimus Prime were headed down the Golden Gate Bridge towards the toll booth.
1: <laughs>
0: How did they get through? <laughs> so.
1: yeah unless they um (laughs) you know with that scanner could they replicate the um the california fast pass um transponder which would let them go through you know but those don't
0: exist in 1987
1: so yeah you're uh, right you're right
0: so it's like did they have a holographic graphic person because you know like that was a thing and and that would make sense but uh what how would that work? So yeah,
1: that that that's a good point. Uh, you know, in the Transformers comics, um, when they sort of relaunched, um, I think it was under the uh, yeah under the IDW banner, Simon Furman wrote um, several story arcs, and in them they would have sort of holographic projections of people, you know, sitting in the vehicles when they would go. Uh, sometimes they'd be holographic. Sometimes they would seem to be just blow up dolls, sort of. Um, but they would be there you know, to kind of mimic um, you know, people being in the cars. And I think that even goes all the way back to the G1 Marvel comic. I recall there were times when the vehicles would drive with no drivers and people would say, wait, you know, how is this possible? And then other times where suddenly um, it would appear that they had someone. Um, you know, I, I'm reminded from your earlier comment about Leonard Nimoy uh, playing some evil villains in Transformers movies of the scene from Star Trek IV, Voyage Home, where Spock and Kirk get off the bus and Spock turns to Kirk and says, What is the meaning of the term? Exact change.
0: Yeah, yeah. They hopefully would have had a plan. You know, it's tough to you know, acknowledge people from a different planet in a completely different form of life, going, Oh, what's a toll booth? <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> <laughs> and if they did not pay the toll i think i mean they would be subject to a fine but i don't think we would see a high-speed chase or anything like that
0: no no that would be no and i, I don't know when cameras went in on the bridge Yeah, but that would definitely be a thing now let's uh, let's talk about going in kind of chronological order now of um vandalism so we we have the dare beach scene of the high cliff jumping and charlie charlie was right to say no to that that was radically dangerous oh
1: yeah absolutely
0: don't do that and so the heroes decided to go get revenge which heroes shouldn't do that like and i get their teenagers and you know could be very upset because hey you just mocked the the protagonist's dead dad but that's not a reason to go out and TP an egg and ultimately destroy a car and you know like that really hits the vandalism laws that we have in california and and even though this is a fictional city in california uh, vandalism is the malicious defacing with graffiti damaging or destroying uh of real of personal or personal property and that's what they do. I mean, you know, TPing would fall into that. Egging would fall into that. Uh, the you know, jumping up on the down on the car is uh, ups the ante to you know you're destroying somebody's car, and like we have laws against that. So I understand from you know a story you know perspective of wanting to you know show something fun, and Bumblebee. Doing something human and dancing around and inadvertently, you know, breaking a car. Like I get all of that, but it would be great to not have the heroes seek revenge.
1: Right, you know, pulling from uh, you know, the Star Wars genre, a you know, Jedi should not seek revenge. Right, which is why they changed the title of the third movie well, from "Revenge of the Jedi" to "Return of the Jedi." Um, revenge is a tricky issue, uh, and it's a it's a story theme that's dealt with a lot you know, in various sci-fi genres, where you, know, you go down that path and uh, it leads you to a bad place. I think that legally speaking, you know, when the kids go and their their plan, you know, it appears to be at the outset, at least, to just TP the home. Um, not actually cause physical damage just really be more of a nuisance and kind of hit back a little bit and say hey you know you can't just push us around like that um, you know at that point I mean, we're talking about really some minor um, uh, violations of city ordinances nuisance um, type ordinances nothing too serious you know the type of thing that one expects to see from teenagers from time to time. I think that it's important to draw a line, however, and you know, th- this um, this gets into one of the movie's central themes. I think, which is, Bumblebee is often portrayed as sort of like a child because he comes from uh, outer space from another planet. He's you know a fish out of water. He doesn't know what he's doing, and so he bonds with in the first Bay movie with um, you know Sam um Witwiki and then you know in, in the G1 animated cartoon with um Spike uh in the comic with Buster all Witwickys um and then in this movie with Charlie he always has sort of a teenage companion to kind of show him the ropes and you end up feeling I think as the audience member you end up feeling some sort of um protectiveness over Bumblebee thinking, hey this is a good kid. You know, I want him to succeed. I want him to do well. And when he makes mistakes or messes up, you just kind of feel like, oh, okay, well, treat him like would have, you would know, a five- or six-year-old. Hey, you know, no, that's not how we do things. Um, so I think that the intent, at least, before they set up to, to the house is, let's just um, cause some mischief. Let's not actually do some irreparable damage. Um, but, you know, I, I think when Bubble Bee gets up on that car, I, I don't think he's intending to destroy it. <laughs> uh, that, you know, that would be... What well, what his defense attorney would probably argue if it ever got to that point um, in front of a court, uh, but the bottom line is, like you say, they they do cross the line there. They, you know, I think that you can be with the characters and root for them you know, when they're just TPing the house, but once they actually start causing um, real damage and they destroy the girl's car, you know, it's a classic case of intending uh, the action versus intending the consequence. Uh, you know, did they mean to cause some mischief? Yes. Did they mean to cause that much mischief? Probably not. But yeah, it's vandalism, plain and simple. I don't think they have much of a defense there. You know, what, what are your thoughts, Josh?
0: Uh, no. I mean, and worse, Charlie's now 18, so can be prosecuted as an adult. And yeah. Get into issue with Bumblebee and his mental capacity, because he did suffer traumatic brain damage, or at least that's how we would qualify it. Uh, I don't know how an Autobot would qualify having memory circuits damaged or destroyed, but he suffered brain damage. And his mental capacity was diminished because of that. So I think there's a good insanity defense that he didn't understand the wrongfulness of his actions because of the injury he sustained. Now that does raise some interesting exploitation issues, of Charlie and Memo, and and th- them encouraging him to do things. Right. He, al- he also makes decisions on his own, such as uh, after the vandalism. We have the high speed chase, whereas at least as you know, as fast a chase you can have in a VW Bug. Yes. Because I don't think that would be high speed. Right. Uh, (laughs) uh, But he does have more under the hood. So, yeah. Uh, (laughs) My dad had one of those cars and it was yellow. So, yeah, they're cute and fun. But, you know, they're simple and not fast. Uh, Now, I do remember stories of people making race cars out of them. And let's not forget the love bug forever herbie shall be known uh but let's talk about uh like that's not okay for it to have the good guys in a high speed chase with the cops because there is a duty to stop uh because of our vehicle code that if there's a police officer who is you know, has at least one red light going, siren in a clearly marked police car, with uh, and he's in uniform, like you meet, you check all the boxes that they should have stopped. And when they refused to stop, we get into the issue of trying to willfully uh, evade the police which was clearly their issue with the high-speed chase so again good guys in a high-speed chase with law enforcement so again not the best message to send but i get it with they were trying to tell the story and you you do need some kind of conflict so like i get why they did it but i would have preferred another way (laughs) (laughs)
1: so yeah unfortunately you know as i'm sitting here staring at my um autobot uh leadership you know matrix of leadership i'm thinking bubblebee could have used some of the wisdom of the ancient autobots there unfortunately (laughs) um you know i I think he's one that would have generally respected law enforcement certainly on his native cybertron and Uh, this is another case where you're in for a penny in for a pound and they start out with the mischief, it gets a little out of hand, then they have to kind of flee. And, you know, the last thing he wants is to be apprehended and maybe he could plead some sort of an insanity defense. Uh, perhaps I mean, we've, we, we're talking about sort of the difference between robots now and humans or robot, I guess would be sort of a loose definition, because these these are autonomous living sentient robots, uh, so we, we get into the larger almost philosophical you know, there's a philosophical intersection with the law here are the robots alive um, you know, I don't know how far we want to go down that rabbit hole necessarily that that has been explored in the comics before, um, sometimes in some of the the um you know animated show uh, episodes as well um. But the place that we're trying to get to is, can we argue some form of diminished capacity, sort of almost like an insanity type of defense? Um, you know, maybe. I mean, as you point out, Bumblebee did lose some of his memories, and he's having some issues um, trying to remember what his mission is, what he's supposed to do. Now, is that different for a human who, you know, takes a blow to the head and can't remember, suffers amnesia? I mean, arguably, yes. You kind of get to the same place, but the fix is a little different. Uh, you can Go with a robot and perform perhaps some microsurgery on their cybernetic brain or just restore certain memory circuits or something like that, which makes us feel a little less comfortable, you know, from the organic life standpoint. Um, you know, can you still claim some sort of a defense there? You know, maybe. Um, his, I think his defense attorney would have to connect a lot of dots to get there, unfortunately, though.
0: Well, if we want to. Of a mechanical type argument of human versus you know, Autobot or Transformer in general. Human beings can have parts replaced, whether it's a heart transplant or you know other organs. Now, we're we're limited on you know, repairing brain damage, comparatively speaking. You know, you just can't upgrade somebody's brain. So that's different but it's it's a different form of life that we're looking at. And that doesn't mean that it should be entitled to less protection under the law because it's different because right. people are different and that's, yeah. that's just life.
1: Right. Nothing. Right. It would be very, yeah, it would be very interesting um, to see what would happen. You know, what if they do catch Bumblebee and they realize he's a sentient robot you know, then what? I mean, charge him as an accomplice, I suppose. Um, and yeah. He's subject to our jurisdiction even. I don't know. <laughs> well,
0: he, he's in the country. Now, it does raise an interesting issue of if, if he could claim refugee status, and I think he could because yes. he has a very real fear of persecution. And unlike some caravans, he actually can drive faster than <laughs> law enforcement's Vehicles, but that's a different topic.
1: Right, we're, 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 we say nothing controversial on this podcast,
0: Josh. <laughs> Just food for thought. Yeah, uh, he. I, but he could qualify as a refugee, and that raises an interesting question. Uh, you know, in, in thinking back to like 1987, like we we had a different view. i mean, like Reagan was president, and you think of the debate between, uh, you know, then Governor Reagan and then former CIA director, you know, George H. W. Bush about compassion for immigrants, and right. you know, in that famous 1980 debate in I think it was Iowa, and I think the the Autobots clearly fall into that. You know, just as you know, we welcomed you know people who escaped Vietnam crossing the Pacific in open boats to get to the united states you know autobots could fall into a similar category because they would be that that quintessential american dream Um, they
1: could be yeah that that would be a really um interesting way for them to approach it uh you know they certainly meet some of the um asylum requirements you know Mm -hmm. sort of fleeing their homeland in is there a genuine credible fear Of persecution, um, or harm should they return? You know, yes, at least in this timeline, apparently the Autobots have lost, uh, the, the war for Cybertron. You know, there are many references to make there. There's a lot of comic material, the war that lasts a million years. Um, there's also, you know, the, uh, the video games war for Cybertron, which um, was also outstanding and actually looked visually a lot like what we saw in the first 10 minutes. Um, you know the more than meets the eye three-part miniseries I kicked off the G1 cartoon as well. Uh, you know there were certainly some. The first ten minutes of the Bumblebee movie I think drew some visual inspirations um, from that as well. But I mean, just putting that aside for a moment, uh, you know, Bumblebee would certainly have a a credible claim for asylum status. Uh, you would need to you would need some form of immigration lawyer to help him make that application, and that would typically at least not end up at some point, not necessarily in an article three court, but in an immigration specialty court, um, you know, before an administrative law judge that specializes in immigration. Um, there's a lot of material there, but I also want to talk about sort of a parallel track, which uh, struck me, which is there's another option. It, he could possibly claim to be a, um, a diplomat or, you know, a representative from Cybertron or from, you know, the, from the Autobots um, and that he's trying to establish some relations with earth uh, and therefore claim some form of diplomatic immunity, which actually may protect him from prosecution. You know, should that be accepted?
0: That raises an interesting question with diplomatic immunity, which is a, like a spinoff of sovereign immunity. And that does, uh, Require that all of his actions be driven for part of a diplomatic nature, as opposed to military action. So that's right. uh, that's also interesting because Black Panther would have that as well. With
1: right, and, and you know, I, I think the part of the idea behind granting uh, diplomats immunity under diplomatic immunity is that okay, well, you are in our country for. These um, grand purposes uh, for you know relations between two different countries, if you end up in trouble, we agree that we will not prosecute you under our crimes, but we will at least, there's some expectation that you will be subject to uh, judgment or potential punishment um, uh, pursuant to the laws of the country or place that you do come from. So, you know, Bubble could argue, well, you don't really have jurisdiction over me. Really, I should be bound by the laws of Cybertron, Cybertronian law.
0: Yeah, we we don't want to go down the path of Lethal Weapon (laughs) 2. Right. Uh, Just a different direction for it. Now, this also touches a fun issue with the Decepticons working with the U.S. government. They arguably violate the Stored Communication Act of 1986, which was on the books,
1: Yes,
0: and we already had the ARPnet, we already had you know, the beginning of the internet, and which is a completely different story on how that comes to be, but the beginning of it's there. And, you know, there are wonderful old videos people can see on YouTube about, uh, you know, the dial-up service and people actually putting a phone receiver onto a little cradle that connected to the computer. I remember and,
1: those days, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, so
0: we already had the internet. So the story paints the Decepticons as inventing the internet. And it's like, mm, no, we already had it. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, let's, let's back off of that. It was already there. And, uh, but accessing the the, the Stored communication act is such a boondoggle and complicated. So this is going to be really, really high level because we haven't updated it since 1986 and we really should because we're applying laws from 1986 to the technology we have today. So the high level issue is the Stored Communication Act was enacted in 1986 to prevent providers of communication services from sharing private communications on certain entities and individuals. So you have uh, remote computing services and then stored uh, computing services now, uh, there are tons of e-discovery issues with this, but this basically, the way to think of it is it prevents people from propounding discovery requests straight to, say, Yahoo or mm-hmm. Gmail and saying, like, hey, produce all of this dude's email. Like, that's not how it works. Right. Because, uh, you know, like, that that's a third-party request and, you know, the SCA would actually prohibit that. And, and you know... Facebook and others you know, fight like hell uh, in court with when you get third-party requests. Yes,
1: they, yeah, they have an army of lawyers, Facebook, all the social media companies, because they get these requests. So what they teach practitioners at ESI seminars, and you'll know this um, you know, as well or better than me, Josh, but what they tell practitioners to do if you're going to try to obtain information about a litigant's social media history or content that you need to really get it right directly from the litigant from the party rather than trying to go to this third party, uh, company.
0: Uh, Yes. And that's, you know, rule 34 exists for a reason. Don't do a rule 45 request when you should be doing a rule 34 one. Uh, but the kicker to that, there are exceptions for trying to like find someone who's defaming you anonymously online. Um, they, A provider could be required to not divulge content, but maybe somebody's identity. Uh, There have been cases like that, but again, there's still a high burden in order to pull that sort of thing off. So the Decepticons and the U.S. government totally violate the Stored Communication Act, uh, if not crossing into violating the Fourth Amendment with the government basically approving content searches of everyone in the Western United States without a search warrant. So like this is beyond like the the metadata bulk collection because it's full on content and that's the fourth amendment doesn't allow that sort of thing. There's no probable cause there.
1: And context is important. As you're pointing out, we're in the 1980s. This is well pre nine 11 where it was a little more easy for people to justify um, you know, fourth amendment intrusions. Um, so, you know, realistically, if we play this out uh, and it's interesting to think of it in this way, the legalities here, you've got these two alien beings, the Decepticons, you know, who are given access um, through working with the United States government, given access to our satellite system, to our information technology system in exchange for the information that the Decepticons are providing technological, you know, sort of advances. And, um, but at some point let's say that the scientists and the government people that are involved in this all survive and you know have uh, a lot of great information if you know come out of it ahead with a lot of great information and scientific advances um should their conduct see the light of day whether it be through some you know sunshine act FOIA request um some lawsuit, some whistleblower who says, wait a second, what we're doing is wrong and I'm going to go to the press or whatnot. And should all this ultimately be judged in front of a court of law? I think you're right. There is some serious legal peril for the government officials that were involved. Um, you know, I mean, what would their defense be? Well, yeah, we know we violated the law, but we just we got a lot of good stuff in return, so there we go.
0: Yeah, yeah let's not forget posse comitatus. right right with sector seven which is not law enforcement it's military and you got the military conducting arguably law enforcement activities in the united states
1: right and you start running into a lot of issues there too you know so um there it, it would be a mess to untangle for sure i mean the um the idea there being that the united states military at least was not you know not envisioned to um, be playing this role of spying on our citizens and um, in furtherance of the agenda of two alien Cybertronian Decepticons, but and,
0: uh, and, <laughs> and it's nice to, to see you know the one of the heroes go like their names Decepticons, isn't that a red flag? I mean, it's like <laughs> the fact that they own that. It's like it's like does anyone else think this is bad? <laughs> no, that- I'm. Hit-
1: And that was great. The fact that the movie takes the source material seriously, but doesn't take itself too seriously. I thought was just terrific. Um, Yeah. yeah.
0: That and like they, you know, on one level they're kind of boxed in because they can't have just everyone in sector seven recognize the Autobots as the good guys. Right. Because of, you know, the original Michael Bay film. So like their hands were a little tied, with some things that they could do and couldn't do creatively. But what they did worked. And, you know, you do have that hero turn around of like, ah, he's a good guy.
1: And that was nice. You know, John Cena kind of sees at the end, it's like, okay, I get it now. You know, despite all I've seen and heard beforehand, what I saw just now in this battle, the way that Bumblebee conducted himself, he, he gets sort of who the good guy is and, you know, let, lets him go. So they have that sort of hero-to-hero, you know, understanding um yeah
0: well then it's like oh he didn't let me die i'm i'm wrong <laughs> and he's, right. he's enough to own that of like oh i would have been a mark on the ground and <laughs> he, he caught me so i was wrong <laughs> and my bad
1: yeah um, yeah but you know that uh, <clears throat> that moment it, it was nice that they at least allowed uh, you know the audience in the story to have that moment where the main um, human um, sort of soldier protagonist John Cena who you know you want to like I mean he's um, just even if you try to put aside the all the great deeds that um, the person himself does individually and you know he's a, a native here um, in San Diego Southern California but he himself uh, sports illustrator recently carried an article about he how he by far and away he far and away holds the record for most uh, Make a Wish visits to sick children in hospitals and their homes, and he does it all the time. And he never wanted his name to really get out much until he was until he was persuaded by the idea that if he did allow his name to be attached, it would result in more donations and more money, more fundraising for the Make a Wish Foundation. Um, so I mean, he's just someone who who does a lot of good. There's a lot to like about him, uh, even outside his um, wrestling persona. And I can say that um, my kids on the playground, they all admire John Cena. He's sort of the guy that they refer to. Oh, okay, you you could fight me or fight John Cena. You know, I guess in the 80s, what what would have been the equivalent of Hulk Hogan, perhaps? Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah, Mr. T. I don't
0: think there's Mr.
1: T, absolutely. Yeah, Mr. T.
0: They... That's good. And it's like having the likable actor and being able to have him have his hero's journey. Like it was good. It was, it was. Yeah.
1: Good. Yeah. And it, it was and, just, and oh, go on. Go ahead. No, no. I, I was going to say that um, the, a lot of the great Transformers stories, so it, it If you read the comics or watch, um, you know some of see some of the greatest Transformer stories. They don't really involve humans. Uh, A lot of them are. A lot of the best stories often involve just the Transformers um, on their missions or dealing with um, conflicts on their native Cybertron. Um, You know, the brand itself, I think, has seen a real creative um, high point with a lot of the IDW comics and James Roberts, the outstanding writer from the UK um, who took, who basically split up the Autobots into a couple of different groups and sent um, Rodimus prime or you know, hot rod um, on a mission, sort of like a pilgrimage with a group of um, auto- Autobots, including, you know, some um, including Cyclonus and some others and the more Than meets the eye series. And then you've got Bumble, will be kind of taking charge and becoming the leader of the Autobots who remain um, behind. But uh, there there are, you know, one of the challenges if you have a Transformer story is how do you make it relatable to humans if you have human characters? Um, and the way that a lot of uh, writers have tackled that is to uh, form these bonds between human characters and Transformer characters, you know, when you realize that the characters have a lot in common. Uh, and you, you do that with sort of of archetypes you have the soldier human bonding with the soldier robot Uh, or you know there was a very powerful moment in one idw comic where you had prowl the police car who's second or third command of the autobots depending on you know how you go how you measure that uh, in series one but he's a transforms into a police car he's law enforcement and he's undercover in this one comic as a police car and the humans are looking for the transformers can't find them And then in just long, you know, really quick, um, uh, reader's digest version, there is an accident. I think a building is collapsing. A child is about to be hurt or crushed by falling debris prowl in his, um, police car mode suddenly transforms a bit so that he can reach out and save this child. And then there's a cop, a human cop standing there and he's just flabbergasted saying, wait a second. Um, you just blew your cover. Wait, how long have you been undercover? Oh, you've been there for months. Oh my God, my Sergeant is going to kill me that, you know, I had, I didn't catch you earlier, but why did you blow your cover? And proud. says, I couldn't just stand here and do and not do anything. I had to help somebody, um, you know, regardless of the consequences, I just had to do what was right. And the cop says in that moment, you know, spoken that was spoken like a true beat cop. And they kind of get each other in that moment. And then the human cop says, well um so i would have to call this in but you know it's going to take them a little while to get here and if you want to get going i didn't have to see you here uh kind of similar to this moment that john cena has with bumblebee so you know you can have some really powerful storytelling moments like that uh, which which is why i'm glad that you know we got to see that at the end of um, the bumblebee movie
0: Plus the nice little breakfast club ending, you know. Again,
1: it's
0: <laughs> it like you know, the 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 only thing during the fight that kind of gave me pause. Uh, I'm like, they do it for story purposes. So you know, Charlie hasn't done a high dive since her dad died.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. So she does a high dive into the dry dock that's <laughs> full of debris. Yeah. At first. That was stupid. I'm mean, like, I get. I mean, like, it's a beautiful dive. And, like, I understand the symbolic nature of it, but that's a dive you do feet first. Because when they teach in the Navy and the Coast Guard, man, uh, excuse me, abandon ship drills, you jump off the ship feet first, cross your legs so that way it's a better shock absorber when you hit the water. You cover your eyes so that way you don't rip them out. <laughs> so it's like she did everything she was should not have done but i get story-wise why they did it so it's like you're just gonna and there's like don't do it it's like i understand why but it's just that's not i mean it's like it's dark you can't see through the water or how deep is that thing because again she could have been headfirst into debris <laughs> Yes, or it could so have been that too shallow for her to dive into.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that that could have ended in very in many bad ways. Um, so I, I think it's great um, that you focus on that because you're absolutely right. Um, you know that that would not be the way to do that. Um, I know what my my wife would say uh, if I brought up that complaint. She would say, "Really, you're focusing on that little moment and trying to inject reality into a movie where you've got these." Gigantic transforming robots running around and blow, blasting things and lasers and science fiction tech and that's the thing you focus on. Um, yeah. to, <laughs> yeah. to which I would respond, "Well, yes, you know, can't we at least have a little reality in this movie, right?" You know? Yes. The
0: robots look like they still follow the laws of physics. It's like, yeah, follow, yeah. It's
1: like
0: <laughs> they're working really hard to have things make sense. You can see where the door is on his back. And it's, it's like, don't do it, don't do it, kid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get why, but two feet first. I'm like, it, I'm like, don't do a cannonball because that'd also be weird. But you know, yeah. just, But again, story wise, it's like that's where they had to work in the dive.
1: Uh, yeah, you, you get that. You know, she and Bumblebee have their character moments where they overcome their challenges. She makes her dive. Bumblebee defeats the Decepticons. Accomplishes his mission, you know?
0: And how he defeated both Decepticons was cool. Like,
1: using yeah. The,
0: using the chains, like, you think this can hold me? Hold me, <laughs> right. That was
1: great. <laughs> he just shreds him. It's like, yeah. well, okay. It doesn't, it doesn't need to hold you, you know? <laughs> Let's hold you a little tighter now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's not the plan. <laughs>
0: and, and, again, shoot the, uh, again, the lock. Uh, and that was kind of a funky dry dock, but whatever uh, yeah it's i mean it's not one that submerges it's it's not a marine railway it's you know, built in the ground and it's it's like a it's, you know, it's like a lock system that you would use to you know like like the Erie Canal yeah type type of thing so again on one level it's like because again, I do a lot of boating in my free time. It's like, well, that looks weird, but <laughs> it's not what like Hunters Point would look like. But right,
1: right. I mean,
0: uh, that stuff. Uh, similar things have existed. It's like the submarine um, ways at Mirror Island. So, it just, but again, just a little
1: different. So, yeah, the way that they killed the Decepticon with the chains—that was interesting because that's not, not something. I don't think we've seen that um, done very often. And it reminds me now, you recall in the 86 animated movie, you know, after Prime and Megatron battle and the Matrix is passed to Ultra Magnus, and Ultra Magnus fights Galatron and the sweeps on the planet of Junk, and he's basically destroyed. He tries to open the Matrix and he cannot do it. Um, you know, there is many people believe uh, a scene that was originally in the movie that was later taken out, but the sweeps fire on ultra madness, but really they fire like these laser whips, they grab his limbs, and they basically tear him apart limb from limb. So he falls apart. Uh, I think it was ultimately deemed maybe a little too traumatic for children who were probably still recovering from optimists, you know, dying 20 minutes earlier. Uh, so that's, that scene doesn't appear in that way, at least in the final version of the 86 movie. Um, but in this Bumblebee movie, we, here we have a uh, robot basically just kind of torn apart limb from limb and falls into many pieces through the use of chains. Uh, it would be interesting to see if you know, the people behind the Bumblebee movie were intending to reference that in any way. Um, that would be very, very inside baseball.
0: I wouldn't be surprised because these uh, folks really seemed to know their Transformers and I mean, down to references from the cartoons with fighting style and and it's like, okay, rock on. Like that's got to respect that. So uh, again, I I have nothing but high praise for this movie. You know, legal analysis aside, there's also just water safety. All of that aside.
1: <laughs> all the maritime issues. <laughs> maritime
0: issues, Start Communication Act, all of that aside. Uh, it's a fun ride. And they really get Transformers right, which is why yeah. I think this is the best out of all of them. And it's like, let these folks make more.
1: I would agree. Um, you know, there is hope among the Hasbro properties that with the success... Um, and. I, there was a, was it a press release by Hasbro or um, perhaps it was uh, the movie studio that just said that Bumblebee is a success. Um, you know, It hasn't made as much money as some of the Michael Bay movies, but when you compare it to the budget, um, it's done, you know, it's done fairly well. Uh, so this, you know, the hope certainly is that this will help the Transformers brand even further, especially in the wake of Hasbro having some difficult, um, financial news in the last quarter, uh, which they pinned largely on the closing of Toys R Us, but Hasbro did have to lay a lot of people off um, last year, unfortunately. So the toy business wasn't doing so well, and maybe this will help things pick up a little bit. In 2007, when the first Michael Bay movie hit, Hasbro had some record earnings, record sales, and it was due in large part to the Transformers movie, I remember reading some of those earnings reports and just seeing the dramatic impact that the Transformers movie had on toy sales at that time. Um, But uh, to draw a parallel, it's interesting to see with the G.I. Joe brand, there have been um, plans announced for a Snake Eyes movie. So you have, again, a brand movie that will focus on one character transformers brand focusing on bumblebee uh, um, there and then the gi joe brand focusing on one of its most recognizable characters snake eyes Uh, if the bumblebee movie helps the transformers brand uh and you know um and builds sales um and it just affects the brand in a positive way is it possible that the snake eyes movie can do the same for the gi joe brand which is currently, you know, low tide sort of dormant, if you will. Um, Those, you know, try to see where all the pieces fit in, you know, sort of what's the next step from here would be, you know, would be the question.
0: Interesting that they're picking characters for these movies who did not speak.
1: (laughs) Very good point. And maybe you know the answer to this, Josh, but um, in all the Transformers canon of which I am aware, I do not ever recall Bumblebee not speaking until the 2007 bay movie i think that was the first time they went that route correct
0: correct because he spoke in the cartoon
1: in the cartoon and the comics when he became goldbug he later became the leader of the Audubon. so this idea that he was just silenced uh, that was very new to me
0: yeah and i mean it's it worked <laughs> it worked um so yeah it's something they retained from bay but uh snake eyes was silent from the beginning you know, and then the old GI Joe comic. It was uh, he was maimed uh, pulling uh, Scarlet out of a you know, helicopter going down, and all def- you know maimed from that. So that'd be interesting. Uh,
1: you know, very very good. Yeah,
0: things you remember from the eighties.
1: Uh, I think it was GI Joe twenty six and twenty seven, um, the two part origin of Snake Eyes comics. Um, you never actually see him talk you know prior to that time he does talk much later when scarlet is injured he just says his, her name at one point yeah. but his vocal cords the idea is that his vocal cords were damaged you know, badly in a hel- helicopter accident and he just becomes a silent warrior later referred to as the silent master in some of the later comics um, but i had not picked up on that until you just said it that it is interesting. The two brands are focusing on two characters that ultimately do not speak. So what if you're going to have to have the people around them do a lot of the talking for them?
0: Yeah. All the, you know, uh, supporting characters are there for exposition.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, uh, and it's 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 like, okay, actors, who wants the role, and it? it's you don't talk in it yeah, <laughs> uh, and, yeah. If, and if they're just wanting, wanting a character they can just have for performance capture well that that could work, maybe multiple people play snake eyes, and but anyway we're 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 getting beyond the, the scope there,
1: yeah, but uh, though um it, it brings up a really good question. I'm trying to think of famous characters from movies. That didn't speak, and I, I can't think of much that's coming to mind right now. I don't know.
0: I think it's a short list. <laughs>
1: so. Yeah, that, that's a tough one. Oof, yeah. Hmm.
0: Well, with that, uh, everyone, you can see us at Pasadena Comic Con on January 27th. Steve and I will be doing Star Wars Law with a couple other folks. We also will be doing a webinar on the end of the month with Star Trek's Elimination of Bias. Stay tuned for registration for that. It's almost like our CLE compliance states do, and we decided to organize a few. So uh, lots of good stuff there. there. So, uh, Steve, thank you. And everyone, thank you for tuning in. Uh, And remember, stay geeky. Stay geeky, America.